I grant that I was with the devil below in his great big fiery hall where the devil was giving a ball. I checked my coat and hat and started gazing at the merry crowd who came to witness the show and I must confess to you there were many there I knew. Welcome to Dispatches, a friendly conversation about hell and some other stuff. With me this week are my co-host, Victoria. Hello. And Jamin. My, my voice can't go any higher. And Jamin. <laughs> Hello. Uh-huh. This week is episode 67 of the Dispatches, Mithra Minute. Mithra Minute. Can I, can I make a joke that I'm sure... Actually, I'm going to... This is a race. This is a race between me and Jamin. Okay. So I'm going to say something and then Jamin and I are going to try to beat each other to the punchline. How, uh, do you want to, okay, ask me how I felt about researching this. Hey, Victoria. How oh, did you feel? Jacob, ab- Jacob should ask us so we can race to the punchline. This is great A podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Victoria, how did you feel about researching this topic? Miserable. Oh. Wah, wah, See, Jamin, wah. I thought that you would jump on that. I was like, I, I got this. I got this. Nope, I didn't got it. <laughs> well, that, that makes me a tidbit sad. I had a lot of fun researching this one. Oh, I know. That was just for the that was just for the laughs. OK, OK, OK. Yeah. We did uh-huh. it for the lols. Uh-huh. We did it for the lols. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus did. It. <laughs> he did it for the lols. You can get that on our T-shirt on our website, buyallthethings.com. Fill the fictitious merch <laughs> and our many, many first albums. Oh, my it's, God. It's the Dispatches Diorama Shop.com. <laughs> Someday, some magical day, we're going to do one of these things. Well, do we want to start with Hell News? Sure. I have a couple of articles that made me happy this week. First one from Portland's The Eater. At Sad Valley, death appears as spilled beer angels and coffin disco balls. Ooh. So this one's about a new bar that's opened in North Killingsworth. Don't know where that is exactly, but mm-hmm. it's kind of got a gloomy sunset look and feel with afterlife playing in the background and cheeseburgers and tableaus of grief and rapture and mourning and a disco ball hanging from a coffin and like florals from funeral homes, it is a death and loss themed bar that opened up after COVID. Oh, way. Wow. As if oh, Portland oh, wasn't wow. depressing enough. Well, it does kind of make sense that it's in kind of a, a geeky town like that. It makes me happy. It's like looking at death as a part of life, as a part of death, as a part of life. Kind of reminds me of like the old Dance of the Dead sort of thing. Yeah, or death cafes too, yeah, which are not exactly. really cafes, but they're conversations. Um, so, did it used to be a funeral home? It looks like he, his mom, was a funeral director, worked in a funeral home. Mom worked in a funeral home, and a lot of people died in his life. Uh, but there's nothing specific about the bar itself; just that it's been heavily themed. Hmm. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Ah, so it's on North Killingsworth Street in Portland. Yes. Okay. Awesome. So we all have to go to Portland. Well, that's a given. Yes. <laughs> Maybe Satan Con will end up there some year. 
I think that's a, yeah, it's, well, it's possible. I mean. That might drag me to Portland. Have we <laughs> talked about Pim's Cups in the past? I feel like we have. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like a Pim's Cup. I don't like a Pim's Cup. It's, they're, they're what's the, it's, uh, uh unctual? Unctu- unctuous? Unctuous. Mm-hmm. Like Pim's, oh. Pim's number one is... I I just I don't understand it. So what is there to understand? Like what what do you need to understand in a drink? I think is a better question. Why am I drinking this? Okay, like uh-huh. it's it's what does this drink bring to the table? Mm-hmm. And can I have another drink to make this drink go away? That's that's kind of me and Pims. Okay, so what is your follow-up drink to to uh, forget the Pims? I don't, I don't know. Like your Pims chaser. Wh- what is the actual flavor of Pims? Do you know it's been an actual minute? It's a uh, herbal, right? Yes, I want to say cucumber. Sweet, fruity taste balanced by quinine. Oh, ki- yes. Okay, so it's like a like a fruity gin and tonic. Yeah, but it's uh like you're supposed to enjoy your liqueur. Okay. Mm-hmm. And not put toes in it. <laughs> the sour toe cocktail rides again. <laughs> Severed or still attached. I still want to do oh. something about cannibalism. They have a drink named after Edith Massey. It's called the <laughs> Cuddles Kavinsky. We like Edith Massey in my house. Oh, do we? okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, apricot liqueur with gin. Ooh. Um, I got distracted by complaining. What do Pim's Cup have to do with Mithras? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Little or nothing, but they it's one of the, like, featured drinks at the Sad Valley. Oh, we're at the Sad Valley. Okay. We hadn't gotten okay. off the Sad Valley yet. So they don't have sad food. No, they have uh, cheeseburgers Pims. and chicken strips and, and okay. things like, like that. pub grub. Yeah, pub grub. Exactly. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, is this a time to talk about my cocktail or, but you have other, you have other news. I do have other news. Mm -hmm. Yes. This one's from the RPG world. Dungeons and Drag Queens is launching, launching a new plot arc. Drag me to the underworld. Ooh, I, I, I have yet to watch this, but I have lots of friends who love it. And so I know that I need to watch it. And, um, I'm guessing I can just jump in with this one. I don't know if there's a narrative arc. That I would be missing, but well, they are on a quest to find some sort of amazing thing in the underworld. So there's a MacGuffin, uh, an infernal okay. MacGuffin. Okay, uh-huh. the best kind. My 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 drag name, Infernal MacGuffin. <laughs> <laughs> the adventure starts with 40 minutes of backstory as Mulligan gives each queen a moment to let us do know who they will portray. Monet is playing Troyan, a merfolk assassin. Okay, nice. Juju B is playing Twyla, a fairy who thinks she can turn invisible. I love Juju B. Drag Queen is playing Gertrude, a witch on the run. Awesome. I'm going to have to bleep her name, but she's my favorite. Alaska Thunderfuck 3000 is playing Princess, an eight foot tall orc wearing a tutu seeking vengeance. So, uh, do you really have to bleep it? I feel like we've cussed on here before. Uh, We've never said Alaska in public. So, that's the okay, gotcha. Go back and bleep that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Yeah, that's the state we don't talk about. It knows what it did. <laughs> it does it. Yeah, I need to watch that because I love all those. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I adore Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, this like time Bob of year in particular. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, so my drink. 
Yeah. Do you want to know what my drink is? Yes. Okay. So as I was researching this topic, I kept coming across the phrase heroically nude. Right. Okay. I believe uh, we have not addressed enough in this podcast. So I was trying to find a cocktail that was heroically nude. Um, the best I could get was the naked and famous. <laughs> I was just, I was going to go for naked and sober, but that's even better. <laughs> like, so it kind of like, and I'm not making this up. It just seems like the off brand of heroically nude. Um, so it's three quarter ounce mezcal. They have, they have a preference, but I'm not going to say it because I cannot pronounce it. Three quarter ounce yellow chartreuse, three quarter ounce Aperol, and three quarter ounce fresh lime juice. Ooh. Put in a cocktail shaker and shake with ice for 20 seconds. Strill, strain into a chilled cocktail coupe. It sounds good to me. I love chartreuse. I love that actually, lime. The, yeah, cold lime, Aperol. mezcal. Mm-hmm. Chartreuse is kind of like, it's not quite bitter. It's a little bit, like it's, I mean, it's, it's sweet, but... It's very it's yellow. Kind of herbally too, right? Yeah. It's made by monks. So for our listeners, what is heroic nudity? Is that the term? Yes. So it is uh, often, it's the kind of Greek nudity you see in, well, heroes and so, athletes. It's typically male. Statues. Near divine in particular. Yeah. Okay. So mo- modest artistic nudity. And I have to say, I feel like there's a whole conversation about the fact that at um, a certain point in cultural history, Lucifer started to be heroically nude. Hmm. What? All the sexy, sexy. Is it because we gave him a discus? I think just, yeah, somebody. I mean, this is when Lucifer becomes hot. The Lucifer Olympics. (laughs) Statues of, of him. Heroically nude. We'll see if this resonates with what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. I, ha- I have, believe it or not, read a book or two about male nudity. And what? One of them, you? One Did of this book have pictures? Did. Uh, <laughs> one of them says that artistic male nudity is usually not a thing unless a culture is in a militaristic phase. That, that makes total sense. Yeah, yeah. it really does. Because... That's, uh, again, this is kind of, I'm entering into, like, I know a tiny bit about a thing, and so I'm going to extrapolate about it for a while, but... I think that's our, that's on brand. So, uh, is it the Spartans who were heroically nude, who fought naked? I mean, a lot of people fought naked back yeah. in the day. Um, like the Picts and well, a lot of those. You didn't want to get blood on your armor. It's true. I feel like it was just kind of a, yeah... Fighting, fighting naked and, you know, Olympians. I also feel like the weather in Greece is better than like the weather in North Scotland. So you'd really have to pick the days you want to fight nude. That's true. Yeah. And I could be wrong about like the Picts and clans like that. I mean, they had other, they wore kilts and whatnot, right? I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were, they, they clad themselves in woad. Yeah. They were a little bit blue. (laughs) (laughs) They worked, they worked a little blue. Well, uh, this actually fits. I, I got um, a slightly different kind of snack. Um, I like seaweed, the little seaweed strips, the dried oh, yeah. seaweed snacks. Like we They're all tasty. like those, right? And they come in various flavors, like soy sauce or seaweed or you know, shrimp, right? So mm-hmm. a buddy gave me a pack of these at work, and I ate them, and I got more. These are chili lime seaweed. <gasps> I've had those. They're really good. They're, and not only are they really good. They are. Had Jacob, have you had yours yet? No, they're sitting on the kitchen counter. Okay. Besides some M&Ms. 
<laughs> so I had the M&Ms. I will, I will ruin the surprise for you. They are not subtle. No, they're not. They are they're chili delicious. lime because people that put chili and lime on food put chili and lime on food. Like I love chili and lime. Yeah, they were really, really good. Delicious. Have some. They'd be good on a sandwich. Oh, yeah. Hmm. They'd be good with some sober and famous. Wait, no. Sober and unknown. Sober and unknown. Oh, that's my drag name. Cowardly dressed instead of heroically nude. <laughs> Cowardly clad. Cowardly clad. That's yeah, good. that's good. I like that. That's our clothing line. <laughs> that's our clothing line. <laughs> like, I did bring a bit of entertainment. Okay. Oh. This isn't entertaining. You know, I think it is. I think it is. But a little extra. A lamb a uh-huh. yap. Being tormented by an infernal sleet storm and bitten by sluts. <laughs> so sluts was actually in your little It's, it's in a, I have generator. a table of sinners. Uh, it's right above single mothers and probably below the prideful somewhere. Okay. Okay. No. All right. No slut shaming because they are the actors here. Oh, no, I am slut shaming. This is, you know, a sin. <laughs> I mean... Not liking inclement weather, I'd rather be sleet shaming. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, right now, sleet would be kind of nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but sluts. Bitten but sluts. sluts. In a more slatternly fashion, how about Mithras? Yeah, does that to a, to, to, totally does not bring us to our topic. No. Speaking of awkward segues. Speaking of which, there's absolutely... Well, okay, we'll get to this, but I did not find anything about, like... Sexy times with Mithra, Mithras. Right. He's a very formal sort of god, it sounds like. I, I had not mm-hmm. seen any pictures yeah. of Mithras without pants. Um, never. Did, yeah. So I think he's fairly like proper. I mean, he's like the god of like contracts and, yeah. oh. and, mm-hmm. and agreements and such. Uh, the closest he's come is shaking hands with Saul. Saul. Like there's there's the the sun god. Oh, Saul. Saul. Okay. Saul. Yeah. Sorry, Saul. Soul. <laughs> Shake hands with Saul. There's a lot of handshaking going on. A lot of heroically nude handshaking. <laughs> Make of that what you will. Hmm. I, but, I I know we all have said we're basically six, but you can't say heroically nude and I not laugh. Like every time you say it, I just be like, ah, it's, that's funny. It's great. It's, it's comedy gold. So, I mean, yeah, I do feel like Mithra in any incarnation we reviewed is like kind, mm-hmm. um, well-liked, but a little stuffy. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you're dealing with contracts and. Right. Right. But he's he a bit day. of an order Muppet. It seems. Yeah. Okay. But he is, he is a God of friendship. Truth. Light. Yes. Truth. And truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. I was saying mm-hmm. truth. He is a God of friendship. He's also a God of truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yes. true. Um. But yes, yeah, so how do we start talking about... Okay, so here's my understanding of everything. Okay. Okay, In so the here's, beginning. here's my understanding of this whole Meshuggana. So we have Mithra. Yes. Right? I Mithra. Uh, actually, uh, in, in, he uh, comes from the Vedic. He's Vedic, makes his way to Persia. Mm, he's Iranian Vedic. Iranian Vedic. Okay, so those two. Yeah, you, yes, you are correct. Yeah. Of course, you are correct. I um, 
I forgot that part. He, the part uh, where I'm correct? <laughs> I try to forget that a lot. It happens. Uh-huh. He may or may not be Zoroaster or Zarathustra. And oh, Rome... Like incarnated yes. as... Yes. Oh, I, I saw some stuff about that. I like didn't know that. Maybe... Wait, no, the other way around. Well, they're... Con- yeah, they are connected in some way. Right, right, right. <clears throat> So, but Roman Mithraism is based on a Roman perception of Zoroastrianism and not the actual Mithra. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So that's everything that I understand. Kind of a four-color version of same. Yes. yes. Uh-huh. Well, I would like to start. I mean, this is this is a good overview of who Mithra is, but the why of this is how Persia, Mithra, and Zoroastrianism entered the the demon story, the Bible story. Yep. And that's kind of what I think brings us together today, because we've been talking about doing an episode on Zoroastrianism for quite some time. Yep. With dread. This isn't that episode, by the way. I feel like it could be two. We'll we'll, we'll cross that. We'll cross that. uh, What's the name of the bridge? Chinvat. We'll we'll cross that Chinvat bridge when we come to it. Okay. Sounds good. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to bore the audience with some uh, neo-Assyrian history, if that's <sighs> if that's okay with y'all. <laughs> I'll I'll be over here. Okay, so <laughs> all of this is kind of going to lead up to uh, the Second Temple period in Judaism. Like that's kind of what we've been kind of drifting towards for the last while, or jumping past for the last while. I've, I've kind of lost the plot. Can you remind us of those dates, please? Sure. So the Babylonian kind of overthrow of Israel was 586 BCE. Mm -hmm. But before then, we had the kind of the Israelite monarchy, which I think was like from 930 to 730, 750-ish BCE. And this is a period where we have like the first temple of Solomon and that that story, that that period, and then kind of the Jewish monarchy, which has been attested in historical non-Bible records. So the, the Neo-Syrian Empire kind of sweeps into the Israel region and takes over around 730 BCE. And this is like kind of the last vestiges of Mesopotamia as like a large kingdom. Mm-hmm. They have had about a thousand years of kind of benign decline where not much is going on. And then suddenly one of the kings in, in the um, Levant Iranian area gets into his head to kind of celebrate old glories by having a new empire. Uh, so this becomes kind of a very big expansion period, and the Neo-Assyrian Empire kind of washes over from the Levant all the way through Israel and beyond towards Greece and becomes the first kind of world empire. About 10% of the world's population is under this blanket, and it's got a reputation for being bloody and violent with lots of like, you know, people's heads on pikes and that sort of thing. But you know, it was the 70s. I think everybody was doing that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, we all yeah bell bottoms and heads on pikes. We all have stuff we try to forget. Mm -hmm. Uh, They got some pretty good communication systems going on, and it's a nice little empire. One that other later empires, and there were a great many other empires, uh, looked back on and took some of the best ideas from. Uh, And then it collapsed. It collapsed because of uh, secession wars. It collapsed because uh, the final king Sargon II took over in a coup and didn't really have any loyalty. It collapsed because there wasn't national identity and it collapsed because Babylon uh, set itself up as kind of a uh, rebel alternative and then kind of flipped the script and took over 
to create the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 626. Okay. When were the sluts? <laughs> sluts are the through line. There have always been sluts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I, I got confused. I mean, we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for sluts. All right? <laughs> it's true. Something think, brings us all together. Mm-hmm. The Babylonian Empire kind of hovers around for like 50 years. And during this time, they sweep through around 586 and drag away a lot of the intelligentsia of Israel, particularly Jerusalem. Jerusalem? Jerusalem. I don't, no one really knows how many, but like one source I've read says about 25% of the population of Israel was kind of whisked away to Babylon in captivity. Okay. The ergo, the Babylonian captivity. And, right. and this is, mm-hmm. is it Judges? What's the series of books for the Babylonian? Uh, Chronicles, I think, has some of it. Chronicles okay. has the Neo Syrian tech over. And this is Daniel and the young man. Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king that everybody hates. Okay. So this is the Chronicles section when Daniel and the other young men are taken before nakedly proud and Nebuchadnezzar. Right. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Heroically naked Nebuchadnezzar. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. So this runs about 50 years. The Neo-Babylonian Empire did not last that long. It kind of wrapped up with King Cyrus the Great, came up to Babylon, said, hey, I'm a Marduk fan too, took over and established the Achaemenid or Persian Empire, which ran, um, I think, another like 70 years past that. I'll look it up later on. But this was a big change for, this represented a big change for Israel because immediately, like within two years, Cyrus the Great had returned not only the, the exiled Jews, but a lot of other people that were held in captivity to their homelands. Uh, and this made him fairly popular fairly quickly. In fact, Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire, was called a Messiah in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, that is rare for a non-Jewish person. Wait. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. Uh, in the book of Ezra, Cyrus comes in and says, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord, the God of heaven, given me, and he hath charged me to build in my house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Uh, and then he goes on to say, again, Ezra 6, 3 to 5, concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are being offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained. Its height being 60 cubits and it's with 60 cubits, so very boxy, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. <laughs> and everybody said, Wow, and that all, is the most boring. <laughs> and oh, it gets better. And also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple of Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. So, like, if you took all of the passages that are essentially just about, like, real estate and infrastructure and, you know, all the begattings out of the Bible, what would you, what would you have left? I mean, infrastructure is important. (laughs) It's true. But I think that's the the part of the Bible a lot of people forget. Yeah. Because you skip over it. You go for the interesting stuff and the stuff that will allow you to hate people. So things I had not known before embarking on this particular rabbit trail Mm -hmm. was that the empire that took the Jewish people away from Israel 
and made everybody unhappy was not the same empire as the empire that returned them to Jerusalem. And that kind of helps explain why people kind of like were happy to adopt from the, the Babylon, uh, the Persians, mm. they were, they were popular in certain okay. regards. There's, there's more to it than that, but they did make good names for themselves by, by releasing all these captivities and returning people to their homelands and having a general policy of religious tolerance as long as it was useful. And these are all things that the Greeks kind of built on later on and the Romans to some degree built on later on as well. Uh, they all kind of respected these, these traditions of let people be themselves as long as the taxes flow. Oh, okay. So, okay. So that's a good use of, it's more of a pragmatic. It is, sort but, of. It, but it worked. Uh -huh. It worked. And oh, like, I'm all for pragmatism. And I mean, I like tell you what, American empire has not been very good about letting people retain their, their cultures. So, no. you know, it's something that's worth, you know, raising a hat to. Mm -hmm. More little. What, what are the um, what is the little cap that we're going to be talking about? Oh, I keep wanting Phrygian, Phrygian yes, cap. The Phrygian cap. Raise your little Phrygian cap to it. Not, not the snood part. <laughs> That's right. Just kind of go. Yeah, like a little like I dream of genie, not of your snood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this all leads into the uh, the second temple period. Kind of rolls out from this. That's when the Hebrew Bible was kind of formalized, written down. And uh, I've been reading. More than us. I got this one a few months ago. John Burquist, Judaism in Persia's Shadow, a Social and Historical Approach. And okay. it, is, it had some ideas that I'd never, ever considered. Hmm. Uh, and I, I kind of have been kind of very excited about them today. I one can tell. The, <laughs> so... <laughs> There, along with the Persian takeover, there are some general tendencies towards religious uh, accommodation for foreigners mm -hmm. and kind of lowering the general like they're all bad of eunuchs because Israel did not like eunuchs before. But okay, so it, say that again. I think I I'm not I that didn't scan for me. I not it, not like in a podcasting sense, but logic like I didn't. Yeah, it was kind it. of gibberish uh, when I said <laughs> no. it. So, so there were a lot of like kind of tolerance to foreign practices that, that took hold in this period, uh, in particular, like um, being able to talk with foreign dignitaries and offices and okay. kind of reducing some of the, um, the down on eunuch policies that Israel tended to have before then, because okay. an awful lot of the Persian Empire was managed by eunuchs. It was kind of like a uh, job requirement to... So yeah. infrastructure was managed like civil servants. Units. Oh, yeah, a lot of them. So um, there, there's a tendency towards inclusion of foreign people because the world is suddenly dominated by this foreign empire that has expanded from like India all the way to the edges of Greece and a little beyond. Okay. I have so, a quick question. Sure. Why did, uh, why were the um, eunuchs hated by... I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of things in Leviticus about, well, probably because they were foreign as a practice. Okay. Like that was not. Gotcha. A, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't the eunuchness. It's the foreignness. Right. I think, okay. I think that's the case. Um, maybe they were associated with foreign gods kind okay. of. I don't, I don't honestly don't know. I have to. Yeah. Like I don't even, and I know like one use of eunuchs, like why, but I, I'm sure there are other ritual reasons for there to be eunuchs. I mean, a eunuch has no future to, to pay for. 
honestly, they're, 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 they're line ins. They don't have family to consider. So that makes them a lot less likely to be storing up things for themselves long-term. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of interesting in terms of like softening some of the, the general dislike and things like that. But another thing I've been confused about is we talked about the apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. As which we we've do. been talking about a lot that a lot lately is it's very hatey about foreign people and foreign groups and things like that. Like it's, you know, very the bad people are going to burn in some creative way mm-hmm. and the good people are so it's very us versus them. And I had not necessarily gotten a sense for why that would be the case, because the Persians seem to be fairly well liked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is interesting. I'm mostly leaning on John Berquist here. There's a couple of forms of literature that occur after the Babylonian captivity. Um, wisdom literature, so like um, Psalms and Proverbs, mm-hmm. uh, uh, prophetic literature, can't put a name on that one, and apocalyptic literature. And at least two of those groups, he puts on the rise of a scribal class. They're like contracted mm. workers that are okay. not priests, but they're okay. studying the same material as priests. And they're very well learned and widely read. And they're the ones who went after Jesus a lot. Like <laughs> in their previous episode, there's a, like scribes going after Jesus in various situations. Yeah, I don't know if that's like the scribes are being associated with the Jews or not. But as right now, as a class, the priestly, the, there's the priestly class versus or and the scribal class. The scribal mm-hmm. class is not necessarily religious. They're more like contracted workers. Okay, so you've got several layers of civil servants here. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> gotcha. the, a lot okay. of the wisdom and prophetic literature is, is kind of done by the scribal class, and it records maybe as like a bone some of the religion that the priests would have kind of written out of, written, written over or written away. Okay. So that number 25% is important that I said earlier. The okay. Babylonians took 25% of the population of Israel into captivity. And 60 or 70 years later, they brought back those captives that are a minority. Reading some of the, the Deuteronomy books of Isaiah, I'm going to get this wrong, but that's also on brand. There's a lot of, uh, lo, the God has returned us to this empty and benighted land, and we shall fill it with our selfness. And we shall make this empty place whole again, because we've returned to our home, where there was nothing else before, because we were taken out. But in mm-hmm. fact, they were a minority returning to an area that had not had need of a central priest caste for 70 or so years. Okay. And they're returning mm-hmm. here to like reclaim social dominance over an area that did not need them and where they were a minority. Mm-hmm. And they established kind of central faith and said, all this other stuff is less important than central abstract faith. This is the true religion. You could argue, and some people have, that the people of Israel were suddenly an occupied nation being occupied by the people of Israel. Okay. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And the, in particular, the apocalyptic texts are angry, kind of burn everything. The blessed will escape somehow, but we don't care. Very grudging, very snarky literature. That was perhaps the product of these people that were exiled in their own homeland by their own people. This mm-hmm. kind of a, a down and out literature against the powers that be, against that bureaucracy. So okay. I just thought that was really neat that, that there was an oppression caused by the return of the people that were oppressed. Right. I feel like we've talked about this before. Maybe in, maybe in parts. Yeah. I think yeah. In, in my, this is the first time it's all come together in my head. 
Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to think back, but I feel like this has come up before the sort of return and the tension between essentially yeah, like two factions being oppressed by. You know, well, it's, your- it, it does kind of remind me of the um, who was the Jewish monarchy around like 200 BC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I, yes, 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 yes. Uh-huh. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and I think they were against Greek. Um, the Greek influence on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hel- Hel- Hellenistic Jews. Yep. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't believe I remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this helps to kind of contextualize some of the demonic and biblical narratives that we've been talking about before, along with this kind of grand timetable of conquest and conquest and conquest and occupation and return and such. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the why. Let's go back to the what Mithras, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So. so- I, ahead, I kind of had, <laughs> I kind of had this like this learning understanding, and I'll I'll sum it up. You know, it's like we get into this. We all had we we didn't have similar backgrounds, but like we had you know the understanding. There's the Yahwehs and the Els, and the overlaps between like the Els and the Baals, the Baals, and then like with those older the Zoroaster, Zarathustra, and then even older than that is the Mithra, right? Mm-hmm. So pre pre indo-iranian proto-indo-iranian is this whole mithra person concept deity right so yeah we're like in the third millennium so i guess that's like 30 well we'll just say 3000 bc yeah well one of the earliest references to mitra the sanskrit version of mithra was in the treaty between the hittites and the matoni no do you know i'm not sure what time period that is no, I don't but. know. <laughs> How exciting. <laughs> I know. Maybe we should look this up. Um, I should have put that in my notes, but I was just excited by that fact that, that there was I know a I know who Hittites reference. are. I've never heard of the Matoni. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> under, under the article Indo-Aryan Super Straight in Mitanni, mm-hmm. uh, Wikipedia says that this treaty between the Hittites and the Mitanni. Or between Superlumi Lumia mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Shadawaza was sure. 1380 BC. Okay. Okay. So that's a later thing. I mean, a lot of the references to Mithra tend to be later, right? Like the first, um, uh, the earliest text of Zoroastrianism which I deleted from my notes. I put in a different note set. I feel like that's, in the eight, that's like 800-ish or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But before then, there was this kind of Iranian, proto-Iranian pantheon that also influenced the region next door of India, the Vedic pantheon. And that has a lot of gods floating around. And Mithra is one of them and became kind of a big thing in both the Iranian region and the Indian Vedic region. Yes. Yes. He's associated with the other gods that are on the Jinba bridge. Right. Right. There's like a group of three of them and they all kind of Mm -hmm. sit around judging the dead a lot. Hmm. Except he's not a judge. He doesn't judge. Right. And he's, he's not a psychopomp either. He doesn't, Uh he doesn't leave people across the bridge. He stays on this side. (laughs) 
It's Roshnu and Sro- and Srosha, Srosha. Like truth, justice in the American way. No, that's not right. It's justice and obedience. And Trosha is the one who's actually doing the judging and the psychopomp, if I recall correctly. No, busy guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the other guys are doing. They're just, yeah, eating sandwiches. <laughs> Making sure the water's full. <laughs> I think that's it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, Srosha, Srosha, uh, I'm not sure how to say that. Uh, they Also, there's a weighing of good thoughts. Uh, good thoughts, words, and deeds. So Mitra kind of is just in the ether as the Iranian tribal faction religion is compressed down into Zoroastrianism around 700-ish or so. Mm-hmm. I just realized we didn't explain what the Chinvat Bridge is. I think we get there eventually. <laughs> okay, okay. We cross mm-hmm. that bridge somehow. Ah! ah. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and so kind of where this is important for the greater hell story is that when the Babylonian empire was kind of flipped by the Persians, the Persians carried Mitraism and Zoroastrianism across their entire empire, all the way to like Roman Greece across like the North part of the continent. I did some math. And at the time, this empire occupied like 50% of the world's population. Right. Whoa. It's kind of amazing because the world's population is like 10 million ish, and this is like 500. Anyway, well, the math works out somehow, unless mm-hmm. I'm deeply wrong, in which case it doesn't. Okay. Fascinating. Yes. But so Mitra is kind of washes over the like northy regions all the way to like Israel and Greece and the Mediterranean. So he becomes kind of the background spirituality that is also like the same zone the greeks take over and the neo-assyrians take over and the romans take over so all this area has this huge amount of shared religion that goes all the way from like india to israel and up to greece which mm-hmm. is is worth thinking about in terms of like how do these stories relate why are there similar notes running through them right before the bible started being written down persia had washed over everything right right mm-hmm Yes. Okay. But it was the Romans who took Mithra up to Germany. Just, you know, Persians didn't get that far. Definitely get there. Um, (laughs) Britain. So why is Mithra important? Before Yahweh stopped being a mountain thunder scary war god, wait, Mm -hmm. there was Mithra who was kind of influencing Jewish thought through, through Persia, through the Zoroastrian thing. And Mitra is the god of how many things we've said so far? Friendship. 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 Covenants, contracts. Contracts mm-hmm. and covenants. Yeah. Uh, and light. Light. He's allied with and, the sun, but is not the sun. And uh, handshakefulness. He's, well, he's, <laughs> he's, he's really into handshaking. Uh, guardian of the cattle, the harvest. Mm-hmm. So he's a shepherd god. In Zoroastrianism, he's kind of a, not quite a one god, but close to a one god. Because Zoroastrianism has Ahura Mazda, the good guy, but... Araman? Araman's the bad, the bad guy. guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, but I always get those guys confused. It's, it's got a lot of Zs in it. And Mitra is kind of Ahura Mazda's number one. Yeah, because he's a mediator between the two. Like, he's right. the one who can kind of go, but again, like the contract friendship. Yeah, maybe a little like mm-hmm. Jesus, I don't know. Or like St. Michael, maybe. Makes more sense. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. very omniscient. He's infallible. He has a, a snood hat. 
Yes, and uh, which again is like another borrowing. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So I think when when one talks about Yahweh two point in the the post exile Jewish faith, you're talking about a god of covenants and contracts, mm-hmm. and you know how much of that was borrowed from Mitra and Mitra's role in the the Persian world. I don't know. Quite a lot, one would imagine, because yeah. before then he was kind of a scary mountain god. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But speaking to the Chinvad Bridge crew, that's mm-hmm. one of a triad of gods, but not the only triad of gods. Um, okay. Yeah, because also um, the, there's uh, Ahura Mazda, Ahura Berzadi, and Mitra are kind of a threesome as well. Threesome is not the right word. A, a three-way? <laughs> I yeah, like that's, triumvirate. That's better. Sure. I like that slightly mm-hmm. less. But on the Chinvat Bridge, we have, uh, was it Rashnu and Shrarora? Shrosha? Shrosha. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. Let's say Shrosha. Let's say Shrosha. Oh, I can't say Shrosha. <laughs> I can't say Shrosha. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Keep saying it. Yeah. And the Chinvat Bridge thing makes Mitra something of a Cathonic god as well, which yep. is a Yahweh trait. One more mm-hmm. thing there. What is the Chinvat Bridge again? It is the uh, bridge of separation that all souls must cross and hmm. be judged on their good deeds, good words, and thoughts. Good right? Thoughts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say this bridge is conveniently walkable? Uh, if you're bad, it's narrow. Oh, okay. I mm-hmm. like it. It's, it's good, like a, a mood bridge. Yep. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and if you're bad, Srosha will not carry your soul across. Right. Mm-hmm. So I guess you have to walk. In a very narrow, unwalkable bridge. Right. That sounds like fun. I, yeah. know, I know a lot of this plays in, uh, in Hindu, uh, but I don't really know how. I haven't like, had that conversation. We'll get to that someday. <laughs> someday. Someday. <laughs> Some week. I mean, it's actually going to be a multi, 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 multi episode arc on Hinduism, I believe. Oh, yeah. Well, they've got such a colorful afterlife. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fun. Um, there's also a spec. Well, we can come to this later when we talk more about Zoroastrianism. But there's not only a connection, but also some belief that the reason why Zoroaster never wrote specifically about Mithra is because he believed that he was aligned um, with a, a bloodthirsty group of Deva worshippers. Mitra was? That's one supposition of why he doesn't show up in, oh, in right, a lot right, of Zoroastrian. Why, why he doesn't show up in the mm-hmm. Zoroastric texts. Yep, 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 oh. yep. That he was associated but with demon worshippers. It's like that Beatles movie. <laughs> Which one? Um, Hard Day's Night? No. no the, well, the, the one about the kid who... No, the, uh, one about the, the one about the Kali cultists. What? The Kali cultists? It's not help, is it? Yes. Okay. Okay. That's one with yeah. Paul McCartney's grandfather. The, um, He's very clean. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, yes, the, the Beatles help. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was total yeah. derailment. I love it. I love it. That's what we're here for. Gives us stuff for the show notes. <laughs> One more note about uh, Mithra before we go on. Another note about Mithra is he's the divinity of the spoken name, 
mm-hmm. which given that Yahweh is I am that I am, uh, and like in the beginning was the word, I think that's one more connection between them and a really strong one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So should we talk about the physical being of Mithra and how he came into this world and what he allegedly did? Are we ready for that? I am all ears because I have no knowledge. He was born under a tree. And or with a knife. Out of a rock. Out of a rock under a tree with a knife. And out of the time egg. I didn't see a time egg. <laughs> so so the, the, my, that's my image here is the time egg. Oh. Was the rock was the rock inside the time egg? Or No, there's separate beliefs. Oh, okay. Yes. Pick your favorite. Was the tree over the time egg? None of these are connected, I don't think. Actually, Jamin, is the tree and the rock are they connected? They're not connected. Uh, I just saw he was born under a tree. So I think the tree story is the virgin birth story. Right. Yes. And the rock story is he comes out of a rock. He's not a baby. He's an adolescent. And he's with a knife. Nude, with a knife. And the egg. Um, what about? Okay. So I have in my notes, I have born of rock slash egg slash maybe tree in a cave slash maybe by a virgin. Um, Was any of that the Roman later myth? <laughs> Mithra versus Mithra? It has Mithra? to be. Okay. It has to be. But I think it's a good place to start. Sure. Um, start at the time egg. <laughs> that's what my mother so, always told me. That's right. Um, so the whole like born of a virgin thing is the thing that pisses off uh, the Christian apologists like our old friend, Justin Martyr. Oh, but Justin S- Martyr. Uh-huh. But Caesar was born of a virgin. It was just a thing. It was a thing. Well, John, John, Caesar was you. He was not born like vaginal. I never right? asked. I don't. Know, was Caesar? I don't know if it was a virgin, but he was just not born vaginally. I thought he had a virgin birth in some stories. I don't know. We'll to, uh, probably. Um, As opposed to who was it that just sprang from the sea foam? Like that's uh, technically a virgin birth, right? Yeah, and there's as uh, Athena popped out of Zeus's head. There's a lot of things popping out of other things. Um, okay, if Zeus was involved, quite possibly mm-hmm. there was offspring. Yeah, I mean, every, you know, he was yeah. a slut. So. He was a slut. Um, <laughs> he was a rapey slut. Um, so the Justin Martyr, uh, the, the way the Christian, the Christian apologists argued that there was in no way a connection between Mithra and Jesus with the virgin birth. Instead, it's closer to Perseus, but Perseus was invented by the devil to... Uh, sway to to make people doubt their faith. Romulus and Remus were also virgin births. This is not useful information. There's a lot of virgin births. Yeah. I knew. No, the, wow. the Romulus and Remus were born from a wolf. No, they were. But was she a virgin? They was born from Rhea Silva, who and was a they virgin. They were suckled by a wolf, right? Right. Oh. Yes. Suckled by a virgin. Hmm. Possibly. But uh, the rock, Jamin, do you want to pick up with the with the rock? No, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay, so uh, the egg thing near Hadrian's Wall, World Egg of Kronos. Uh, so it's a youth standing in a wheel bearing the signs of the zodiac. So this is Mithras, Lord of the Ages, or Lord of the Age, actually. 
is that the rock is more canonical. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of the rock. Okay. The things a little bit more specific. Okay. Uh, you see it in the Mithrium near Hadrian's Wall. Okay. And uh, Mithrium is where they grow Mithracines. Yes. That's <laughs> they plant the baby Mithrites. Aww. That's right. That's uh-huh. So cute. Uh, the that's where they practice the mysteries. The mysteries. The mysteries. Right. Um. So the egg thing is that it is the uh, world egg of Kronos, and the circle around the youth is uh, signs of the zodiac. Okay. And uh, this actually depicts Mithras, Lord of the Age. Okay. Mm-hmm. But this is Roman Mithras, right? Or rather, yeah. late, late Mithras. Yeah. Hadrian- but there's no other origin story for Mithras. Yeah, Mithra. he's just kind of part of the background mm-hmm. myth of proto-Iranian mm-hmm. Vedic stuff. Wait a so, second. Yes. Did you find something? Well, again, like I, I didn't go down the beginning, but I thought, according to myth, Mithra was born bearing a torch, armed with a knife beside a sacred stream under a tree, child of the earth itself. Yeah, good thing it was okay. a virgin birth because that would really sting coming out. Right. Um, <laughs> he soon <laughs> giving birth to a diorama. Oh, yeah. and this is this is <laughs> this is Britannica. So he soon rode and later killed the life giving cosmic bull. And we haven't even talked about the cosmic bull yet, of which yeah, I have so much, much to with, say. Yeah, there's so much with all of that. So yeah, he was he he sprang forth with a knife. Meaning he had control over nature and animals. Sure, that's what that means. Right. There was a life-giving bull. <laughs> For a me, space bull. I, went, I went to Target and bought a knife. <laughs> <laughs> right. And now you have mastery and command, master and commandery over the kitchen. No, but go on. So part of the myth of story is also like the world origin story in which like mm-hmm. because he slayed the bull, the bull gave forth life-giving blood, thus feeding the entirety of the world. I thought the bull Mithra is important. Mithra is very down on sacrifice, though. He's a non-sacrificial deity. So what's this about? Okay, so are we ready to talk about bulls? Yes. Okay. Yes, because this is very specific and explains why it's not a sacrifice. I'm a, tid- I'm a tidbit lost. We, let, me, <laughs> let me make us even more lost. We cannot, mm-hmm. we cannot talk about Mithra without talking about Taroctony. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Tar Taroctony. So T A U R O C T O N Y. And it's basically killing a bull. Oh. From the Greek words tar, meaning mukau, and ktanos, which is slay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then mm-hmm. I was excited because I thought this made sense because there's other Greek suffixes which we see, like, um, Ecto, which means to take a bite or to remove a chunk. Um, okay. Tomo, which is to slice or to sever. Stomo, which is to make an incision. And this, well, this will make sense here in a bit. Okay. So a lobotomy is you slice a lobe. You literally slice the two halves of your brain. Okay. Whereas a lobectomy is you remove a portion of your brain. What is a taropotamus? That's a cow horse. Okay. I know that. Hmm. No. It's a I'm cow sorry. River. It's a cow river. Yeah. I'm sorry. I got that backward. Hippopotamus. 
Toropotamus. Okay. So a torectomy is when you bite the bull. A torostomy is when you slice the bull. Toromaki is when you fight the bull. Hmm. Torobolia is when you sacrifice the bull. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I do love me my Greeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the toroctony ex- okay. is important. And I will tell you this. One, this is important. And then I'm going to directly quote Wikipedia, which I try not to actually do. Okay. But it's free. It's free. <laughs> okay. So because the later, the modern mysteries were Roman, they weren't really the old stuff. There was this kind of like cult where you're initiated, you go underground into the temple, you do secret stuff you don't tell your friends about, you invite your friends, you do secret stuff, and they don't tell your other friends. Yeah, it's like Mithras lives in Plato's cave somehow. It's very strange. So we don't actually Uh know what happened. There was very little written evidence. However, there's lots of these old temples found, and a lot of them have this slaying of the bull. Right. Okay, so to directly quote, We don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. And then Wikipedia. Following several decades of increasingly convoluted theories, (laughs) Mithraic scholarship is now generally disinclined to speculation. Oh, well, that's... I'm just like, yeah, it's like, look, I'm tired. Don't don't know, don't care. (laughs) Don't know, don't care. Look, I'm tired of your bullshit story. It's probably wrong. It was probably boring. Quit guessing. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so... The Tarachnini also refers to the image that is at every single Mithraeum. Right. You've got Mm -hmm. the sun, the moon. And again, very likely, we don't know for sure, very likely, they didn't just go around killing bulls every weekend for fun. That was a different kind of sacrifice, right? This is an origin story. We killed the bull, the cosmic bull, and thus brought forth the earth as we know it. It seems really weird that a cult that was kind of like, well, not a cult, a major religion that was based on like a fairly open God of truth mm-hmm. and community and friendship and the sun got turned into kind of like a, an underground boys club moose lodge. But also of uh, the most popular, well, I think, you know, maybe the religion of Roman soldiers. Well, yeah, because he was mm-hmm. kind of the kingship god and therefore indirectly a god of war. And like the Roman Empire really, well, the Greeks, the Greeks did not like Mithras. No. Because they had fought against the Achaemenid Empire for so long. But the Romans liked him and said he was kind of like the god of the empire almost. Yes. So I just for our listener, um, okay. <laughs> we've kind of skipped something in the middle, which we're going to talk about next week, which is. Zoroastrianism, right? because the Roman, what we're talking about now is influenced by a perception of Zoroastrianism. So it may or may not be connected directly to anything. Right. Since they're both called Mithras, they're in the same articles and we can't separate them in our heads. Exactly. And it's more interesting to think about it this way. But I will say, do we want to talk about the image of the Tarakhtani? Yeah, let's let's go back to the image, the the sun and the moon. Um, There is a cockerel and an owl. Mm-hmm. which is sunrise and sunset. Okay. Allegedly, if like, if we speculate, right? This like, there's lots very, of imagery. Very hermetic. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, from the open wound that 
Mithra has stabbed his knife into to let the life flowing life flowing blood out, life giving blood flow out. There is a serpent and a mm-hmm. dog looking at this. And they also have imagery because of the many, many Tauroctonies. In fact, I just read an article. It's like my seven favorite Tauroctonies across Europe. <laughs> right. Um, why a serpent <laughs> and why a dog to represent we, the world, drinking life. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then the most terrifying thing that I had to save for Jacob. There's a scorpion. Uh-huh. Okay, so there's a dog and a serpent drinking mm-hmm. the blood. Don't type, Jamin. Um, so there's a scorpion, Jacob, and then click the picture. Uh, the scorpion is pinching the bull's balls. Oh, wow, no. It's so... As the bull like... is dying, it's having its testicles scorpioned that is not fair in a ritual life-giving fashion i don't know how that uh, there's so many things like the description of exactly everything that is happening to this poor bull right like and it's not just one artist saying hey in this one temple let's have a scorpion nipping his his bits right no all the taroctonies have a serpent and a snake and a scorpion and it's a it's a nether scorpion scorpion Mm -hmm. right like there was specifically symbology in all the way this was combined which they went through once you joined level two of the mithra boys okay Mm -hmm. okay well why we don't know no it's a mystery and speculation is disinclined to speculate but now you need to talk about the mini me's the mini me's of mithra which the tiny Mithras. Oh, the, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, the uh, the uh, Cautus and Cautipates. Yeah, the Cautitis. Yeah, so it's uh, C-A-U-T-E-S and C-A-U-T-O-P-A-T-S, the torch-bearing twins who are miniature versions of Mithras. And uh, one of them has a torch going up and one of them has a torch going down. Oh, jeez. Um, typically, or they may have actually... Um, they can also have crooks instead of torches and a little bit more about them. Cause I was really fascinated by these little dudes. Are they related to Aramanios and Aramazes? I think they are. Let me, why did I put information about those dudes? Hold on. Please hold. While well, while you're, while you're looking at that, I'm going to spend a few moments of time. I'm going to define Aramanios and Aramazes. These were members of the Roman pantheon that were opposed light and darkness uh, spirits. And Mithras was sort of an intermediary intermediary figure between them. Uh, Armanios was not bad. He was good for warding evil and a mourning spirits. Therefore, sort of Pluto and Hades. But Mm -hmm. Aramanios is is from Aramain or um, Ahoramania. And Oromazus is, I think, tied closely to the idea of Ahura Mazda, the good guy. This kind Actually, of... Actually... Oh, dear. Okay. So, I believe that uh, those figures are associated with the lion-headed god, not these dudes. Oh, I really like the lion-headed god. So, we'll come to the lion-headed god. But these dudes, uh, which are kind of thing one and thing two to Mithra's cat and hat. <laughs> Literally, he's a cat in a hat. Um, they have the torch up, torch down, 
They could represent life and death. So uh, the one with the torch down is Katopedes. He could represent death and Katas may re represent new life because he's got his torch up. They can also be the spring equinox and the autumn equinox. If you're holding a torch down, would it burn up and like burn your hands? Just like the autumn equinox. Okay. Come on. Sorry. Come reality. on. I, I won't. I won't try and force reality into my discussions. <laughs> so, uh, there are other images that are often part like shown in conjunction to the Tarakteni. Yes. Other so important much important events. So mm -hmm. much cavery. Do you want to know more about those important events? I was yeah. distressed by the last one. Are they less distressing? Yes, there were really fewer scorpions. Good. Okay, let's yeah. go. <laughs> I don't. I don't have any more scorpions. But so the key things um, you have in in all of the stories in these Mithraeum, there's uh, the Tatoctony, there's uh, a banquet, there's uh, well, okay, so there's there's kind of a progression. So you have the 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 You have uh, Mitra's. Uh, and Saul shaking hands, becoming buddies, okay. sort of encounter between the two. You have a banquet where they eat bull parts. That's how <laughs> it's often referenced as the eating of bull parts. Okay. And steak. You have... Steak is a bull part. Let's let's <laughs> right, just be exactly. okay with steak this. Is a bull part. I like eating bull parts. Steak. I, uh, we all enjoy eating bull parts. I tell you what. And uh, there's a water miracle. And then Mithra ascends to the heavens in a chariot. Oh, on a water. Mm -hmm. It's like so, one of those, those bottle rockets. Whee! So one of the interesting things that I found out about the banquet is that in these Mithraeum, there was they would have banquets. That was part of the ritual. And we know this because of the earth in the Mithraeum. So when they've this is an article from atlas obscura so it's got to be true i love atlas obscura Fair. um so there is the the banquet that they have in the mithraeum they roast their meat they eat their meat um they actually burn the bones and then they spread the ash on the floor and then they carefully stamp it down with their feet over time several layers of these ashes and bones and so uh the uh, archaeologists who have gone in and studied this have seen like these layers. They've uh, seen that it's carefully tamped down, like it's in even layers. And so they think that this was part of the ritual, part of the ritual of the banquet. I see. Um, we think it's actually part of the ritual, but in truth, because it was just a bunch of drunk dudes, they were like, <laughs> I don't really feel like cleaning up. Let's just step on it real quick and we'll be fine for the next party. Right. They felt, yeah, yeah, and I guess they don't really know what the purpose of it was, because how would you know? But that was definitely something that was uh, they were doing on. Yeah, purpose. they and they did it. They did it. So mm -hmm. far as so far as purpose goes, a lot of people have thought this entire I'm just calling going to call it nonsense was because there was a neo pagan revival following the embrace of Christianity by guy, big name guy who embraced Christianity. And as Christianity spread, a lot of the old guard Roman types uh, really embraced like wackadoo ritual like this to kind of celebrate their pagan stuff. But it was not really grounded in anything like deeper or more like long legacy than than the desire to have a ritual. 
Right. And yeah, I think, again, this is one of those mysteries. Very, Um, yeah, very Moose Lodge. Yeah, it is. But Um, they they discovered also that in some cases, they, they can see that the floor was removed and then they started over again because it got so high. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, we're having too many parties. Exactly, exactly. And then kind of to what you said, Jacob, at its height, and again, we're talking about new Mithraism, not old Mithraism, right? Um, At its height, Mithraism, the the Mithraic mysteries were the number one... um, Were the Uh, number one... Something oh, a blank. competitor? Yeah, number one competitor against Christianity. Yep. So it's like, mm-hmm. as these two religions are raging the world, one is full of kindness and light and turning water into wine, and the other is in embracing the super spooky old ways and also eating bull parts. Yes. Bar- barbecue is a really good sell. Yeah. Yes. I actually mm-hmm. expect, I mean, Christianity was pretty austere at that point in time, so it might have been a better sell. <laughs> Well, I wonder, do you think maybe the stamping out of the bones and the ashes was a way to sort of like uh, create even um, like hide the act, like hide what they were doing? I mean, adding layers to a ritual is fun. That's one of the reasons people do it. So maybe. That's true. I mean, it could, that's, that's, true. That, yeah. that, that's a way of ceremonially, that's a way of like closing the circle and ending, ending something like that. That seems pretty valid, ritualistically that's speaking. Tr- that's true. You want to talk about handshaking? I kind of want to talk about naked lion guys, but let's talk about handshaking. Because I feel like handshaking. <laughs> I didn't find really... any handshaking. Oh my gosh, there is so much handshaking. <laughs> I got distracted by the octonies. <laughs> so about you're handshaking. into octonies. I'm into handshaking. Um, so there are a lot of um, images with Mithras and Soul shaking right hands. Shaking right. And okay. Right. Well, I think, you know, like if you're stand, like, yeah, right, that's how so, it works. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 So I was and just, so, look, I was looking at Candyland yesterday and in the earlier versions of Candyland, there's an image of two children running, holding their left hands together, which is very, very weird and <laughs> difficult to manage. What? So I had a moment. I feel like of, that's an occult It might be like a Masonic thing, maybe. So I got. I think so. Their children are Masons. <laughs> yeah. So I got a little confused there, but do go on. Oh, yeah. So, so handshakes. With gods existed before Mithra, but uh, this is again this enacting of this very, uh, you know, this important um, image. So they signified handshaking, signified the conference of kingship on an individual. Their images of Heracles and Athena shaking hands, which conferred uh, the same level, like the the same level of importance or godliness upon Heracles as a god like Athena. There, it, it can also be uh, between the deceased and a psychopomp. There are images of Mercury leading people by the hand into uh, the afterlife. That specific hand clasping is dextrarum uncto. So there's a there's a name for it, which I found super in- interesting. Um, there's a lot of angels leading important figures. Which again, it sort of confers this uh, stature upon the individual who's clasping hands with the angel. Seems like the alternative would be like Michael reaching down and like pulling someone up by their nostrils. So really, hand- <laughs> handshake is just logical. <laughs> it, but it, but it has a lot of meaning because it's like truth. It's a contractual thing. Like you, you know, 
we shake hands. We still shake hands when you come to an agreement. And this came, this was started, you know, I'm going to, of time. I'm going to play Jacob's advocate on this one. No. And well, hear me out. Hear me out. Okay. Um, I regularly taunt the dogs because I can open doorknobs because I have thumbs and they don't. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. Like they're going to murder you. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's like handshakes again. Like this is the grabby bit. One grabby mm-hmm. bit to another. Is it but really why- special? Yes, because why else would you do it? I mean, there's no reason for an individual to shake another individual's hand unless there's some ritual meaning to it. You could just grab their arm. I mean, there's a gazillion other things, but like a specific hand clasp means something. I feel like I want to say something about the etymology of the word testament, but I won't. Okay. Well, but but all this is to say that the handshaking in Mithra, Mithras, with soul mm-hmm. is an important part of the ritual for the for Mithraism and for the mystery cults, which continues to this day to Masonic groups, fraternal orders. Do you think it was just a handshake or was it like back slap, four slap, hit the top, hit the bottom? I hope finger, it was like finger burst. Listeners, you can hear my hand slapping. Yeah, you doing all sorts of cool we're things. demonstrating each of us are uh-huh. our handshakes, each of us. But it's notable. I will say, like, there's a continuum, an importance of handshakes throughout time. They're very meaningful. And I stand by my argument. All of this is keeping us away from the important topic of naked lion guys. <laughs> can I, can and, I just mention <laughs> two more things that will frustrate you? Okay. okay. And then I want to say one thing about Tarotonies. Okay. So I'm just going to Go say, ahead. I do not know anything about these two things, but there is always a water miracle. Um, where fire bolt into where Mithras fires a bolt into a rock and rock now spouts water and he ascends to heaven in the chariot and I have no idea what that's about. Again, eighty style water rocket water rocket toys. <laughs> okay, the water miracle is always the creation of water, right? Yep. And mm-hmm. we see that in After several beers. <laughs> ah, zing! Said the non-drinker. <laughs> um. Like we see that in in the future, like that story is taken and stolen. I mean, sorry, reused. Like um, Moses hit a rock with his rod and made water, right? Mm-hmm. And this is again, it's the it's the bringing of life giving into the world. the The parched yes. land needs water, mm-hmm. um, so we kill the bull. Okay. Um. And then. I guess this kind of ties into the life-giving aspect is in all of these Torochtonic figures and all these Torochtonic sculptures, like they're very, very repeated. There's always the four figures. There's always the three critters. There's always dude face with his Phrygian hat. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and he's always, you know, stabbing the cow. And holding its nostrils. Not holding hands with the cow. I yeah, would yeah, point yeah. Out. definitely not. Definitely not. Uh-huh. But he's always facing away. His head is no. turned away from the act he's doing. So he he's a show off his hat. <laughs> <laughs> Check out my snood. And again, we're not we're we're disinclined to speculate. 
but mm-hmm. he's not focused on the act of the killing. Like he's not reveling in the destruction. No, he's turned away. Him, that made him sad. Like he's not yeah, yeah, yeah. into killing things. No, he didn't like having to He's kill looking people. away. He's not enjoying this. Well, mm-hmm. we can't say what he's feeling because we're, we're speculating. But repeatably, there's always a scorpion pinching the balls and he's always looking Pretty away cool. from the open wound. Yeah. Oh, and wheat comes out of the wound sometimes. Did we already sometimes, mention that? Yeah, wheat, corn. Why? Um, mm-hmm. That's M and M's. M and M's. So you want guns? <laughs> like, you shall have he's guns. He's like a freaking pinata. This this bull. <laughs> Honestly, this is exactly what happened. He gave forth the party giving miracle of candy. <laughs> oh, it's a skittle bull. Okay, Leontocephalus. Yes. Do you want to talk about lion-headed gods? A little bit. Rather like the long paragraph that ended, we don't know and we don't care. Uh, No one really knows what the Leontocephaline figure means, but this is a figure that's associated with the Roman Mithras. And it is generally a naked lion-headed man with a serpent twined around him, sometimes two Caduceus style. And I think he's sometimes holding a torch. Is he really naked or is he wearing a serpent? Um, oh. uh, it depends on how the serpent is moving in the next few minutes, but mostly Kinda like that Bjork dress. Yeah. Uh, four wings, two keys, a scepter sometimes standing on a globe, sometimes the diagonal cross, sometimes the symbols for four seasons. You just layer on symbols on a naked lion guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's associated with the Roman version of Mithraeanism. And one theory is that he represents kind of the god of time and is yep. in some sense responsible for holding on to Mithras's immortality, which reminds me strongly of Orneus, the lion, serpent, fire god that's the a demon that's the first spirit in the Testament of Solomon and is a demon that kind of reaches up to the heavens and down to the earth and maybe like one of the four key demons of the Goetia, et cetera, et cetera. But He's a lion serpent figure, which there are several in like standard demonology. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned um, Arminius um, earlier, right? Arminius. Yes. So I saw some references uh, that this lion headed God could be that figure, Hmm. um, but he's the, yeah, he's supposed to be a counterpart to a Mazda figure. So he's supposed to be good. And also there's supposition that it's Araman. Who's not, who's not, not, good. not, not, not good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But that would make some sense, I guess, if you think about Mithra as the mediator between those two. Also, Plutarch suggests that this is Pluto or aligned with Hades or Pluto. Which? So again, sort of an underworld figure. Oh, the, the Leontocephalus. Okay. Mm-hmm, Interesting. Mm-hmm. I I don't know. I, I there are chthonic elements. Yeah. So also it could just be the Leo uh, level of Mithraism. So uh, as, as Jamie was saying, like a lot of these things are aligned with different uh, levels. So and at some point you, you get to take a naked lion guy home with you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Exactly. And and yeah, like you said, it's Aeon, the personification of eternal time potentially. But it also reminds me of the Gnostic demiurge. Who is a lion snake composite figure? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so uh, we've already talked about the really uh, kind of more interesting details of all this, but 
uh, a question that remain or two questions that remain. Are, is this is the story of Mithra related in any way to Jesus? And two, yeah, December twenty fifth, right? The December twenty fifth thing, which also is the birth date of Sol. Like, well, not the birthday of Sol, but the festival of Sol. Okay. So there's again, our friend Justin Martyr insists that there's no connection. It has to be like again a pagan thing that is being referenced here. Mm. But he so, was a Christian apologist. Yes, ergo. Yeah. The martyr part of his name, I suppose. <laughs> um so yeah. I'm trying to think is was there anything else that apart from the virgin birth? Oh, the resurrection, like he is a cyclical well, god. And there were some Trinity things happening too. Uh-huh. The Trinity stuff I felt was really old Vedic stuff. I think you might be right. I don't know if he, uh, he captured I, and, that going forward. And again, like the the Christian Trinity is so new compared to all of this that I I can't see there being any any overlap in the concept. Like right? Does that make sense? Like the concept of the current Christian Trinity is so far removed from any concept of the old Vedic three triumvirates. Yeah. That I mean it's just like there's so many things that are three in this world, it's you can't even call it coincidence. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's, like, that's my conjecture. I do feel like you were saying, does Mithra directly influence Yahweh? I think the answer is like, yeah, quite a bit. Oh, 100%. I mean, yeah. na- Mithra's name even means like binding and contracting covenant. Yeah. He, he is a, a covenantal, not just, not just a covenant, but also, I mean, and this kind of goes back to like civil servant, right? Like, Yes, he's the he's the light bringer and the oath keeper in the contract, but that's how society works. And this the killing of the bull and bringing forth life into the rest of the universe, the creationist part of this, which must work based on interactions and mutual interactions, right? Yeah, like this is creation, and we must play our part and shake hands with each other. And when you put while it in nude, con- when you <laughs> when you put it in, in the context of um, reinventing Yahweh for post-imperial situation, you have a situation where it's very useful to say that, yes, our Yahweh is our God of covenants and contracts, so much like your God that we can get together and agree on things. Handshake. <laughs> ah, see? Mm-hmm. Okay, so my second question. Yes. Is Roman Mithraism in any way actually connected to Mithra? It's a god of covenants and contracts. Let me okay. ask you this. Uh-huh. If you look at today's date, it's like 2015. The kids all have Walkmans, etc. Just because they wear bell bottoms, are they the same kind of hipsters as the hipsters from the 70s? Okay. Or are they mm-hmm. just taking something that they thought cool was was cool and making it their own? Right. Oh. All of these empires, like the Greeks really respected the Mesopotamian Empire. They really respected the Persian. Well, the Greeks didn't like the Persian Empire, but they probably respected them. And all these empires are building on each other and looking back on each other. The Roman Empire took the seat that was vacated by the Persian Empire, ultimately. So to look at the land and the people and the stories that came before and just take from their success stories, 
I mean, that's very reasonable. And Rome had, you know, hundreds of deities because they just adopted them free form and they didn't really have a god of contracts. So, you know, they probably did originally adopt Mithras into their pantheon as, as this covenant god. But over time, he became a uniquely Roman deity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, they, they, and again, they did you know, deities. First and second century Roman soldiers, they're out and about, they're smashing some Gauls, and then they go back to their towns and they go into their secret caves and they have them some sweet barbecue, like mm-hmm. what dudes mm-hmm. like to do. That seems legit. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's basically an Asterix and Obelix novel. Like, I read that comic. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, 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 what? Asterisk and Obelisks? Asterix and Obelix, the, uh-huh. the comic. Oh, oh, right. We've t- okay. Yes, 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 yes. Gotcha. It's it's okay. Glossini and Uderzo, like they're French comic artists, yes. and but they uh-huh. yeah, they're they're always like the indomitable Gauls facing the the Romans, right? Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I think you've mentioned that before. Thank you, thank you for clarifying. So, where does that leave us? I'm done. I'm out of Taroctonies. <laughs> You did a yes. Thank you for your. I know you were super excited. I was so excited. Again, and I want to. I want to reiterate by saying again, one thing that fascinates me up. That one thing that fascinates me about these images is how repeatable they are. Right. It's because if you look at like, if you look at Christ on the cross, you go to any church and there's always like the Christ on a cross, and there's so many Mm -hmm. different iterations and variations. Right. Mm Hmm. But there's some repeatable elements. I was just down in San Antonio this weekend, like Mission Concepcion, and there was a Christ on a cross. There's a mm-hmm. fancy word for that. Um, Crucifix? But, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Let's just be offensive all around. Oh, there's a Christ on a cross. Um, but there's so many elements which are repeated, right? Um, it's not just two or three things. It's the four dudes, the two light bearers, the three animals, the cap, the looking away. Like this mm-hmm. was, this was a very symbolic image. And I, I don't know, like maybe it was, we're, we're speculating again, but if we have the stations of the cross and we go through the seven stations, maybe each animal was part of the ritual. And then you have a shot and stamps the bones on the ground. I don't know. Sure. The Mithrius cult was not big. It was like really just mostly Rome. Oh, but no, it's Germany and Britain. Germany, Austria, Britain. Mm -hmm. Anywhere there were legionnaires. Anywhere there were legionnaires. (laughs) But yeah, so it it was pretty widespread. Hadrian's Wall. You know, there's a Mithrium there. And maybe, maybe you could say it was only Roman. Yeah, like Roman Roman soldiers to these places. But then, like, there were conscripts into the legionnaires, into the legions, who essentially became Roman by proxy. Encyclopedia Britannica says that the entire Mithras story kind of came to an end, more or less, when Constantine converted under the Mm -hmm. sign of the cross. And he didn't say it was illegal. But that was really the death knell of any, all other religions became unfashionable. Right. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's a resurgence in sort of pagan, uh, I wouldn't necessarily say pagan, but there is, there are people who are following the rituals of Mithraism to this day that adapted. Hmm. 
rituals? Because one of the books I read was specifically like, how do you adapt these rituals into a modern context? When you say adapt, do you mean make up your own barbecue rituals and just pretend that they're real? I think it's it's taking the ideas and creating your own um, poems and songs Hmm. and... Not to discount, uh, not to discount the neo-Mithraics. Like, mm -hmm. you dudes have fun, right? Right. Mm -hmm. In your cave with your barbecue. (laughs) I kind of skipped over all the poems. Invite me. Because I just wanted, and I didn't really want to know how to be a a, a Mithrian. I just wanted to know the backstory. Is this kind of like reading The Hobbit, where it's like you just skip over the songs and then you get back to the plot? Or the Bible, like you skip over the real estate, the infrastructure, the begats, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just the, mm-hmm. just the sex seats for me. I was going to say, like, just the fights, the revelations, all of the ba- all of the kind of, you know, yeah. uh, gory stuff. So next episode, we're going to stay here for a while and talk about Zoroastrianism proper, its myths and stories, and mm-hmm. kind of how they might have percolated out in other forms in the, in the kind of greater hell demon story. Can I give a spoiler? Sure. There will be hedgehogs. Wait, what? There are hedgehogs. Awesome. (laughs) Trust me on this. There is a hedgehog Mm -hmm. demon. I'm curious. And Mm -hmm. do we know what we're doing after that? Uh, I'm going to be disinclined to speculate. Okay. So (laughs) until then, we will see you in hell. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is copyright 2023 by The Dispatchist and is Creative Commons. You're welcome to reuse with attribution. Look for us on your favorite podcast app. Say hi to us on Twitter or Gmail at The Dispatchist, no spaces. Check out our website, dispatch.ist, for episodes, show notes, and a variety of hellish resources.